Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, What do you mean by doing these things? Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, identified as the head of gold in a dream that Yahweh gave during his reign. After witnessing the impeccable character of Daniel and his friends, witnessing divine miracles, and also experiencing personally humiliation beyond belief as he was taken down uh, to the level of, of, a, of, of a beast and then restored to his f- former glory, he came to understand that the Most High rules in all things. And then he willingly submitted himself to that rule according to the light that God gave him. In Nebuchadnezzar, we see an amazing transformation of the human soul. As we come now to chapter 6, Babylon is is conquered. Babylon has been absorbed into the Medo-Persian Empire, um, represented in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as the chest and arms of silver. Cyrus, also known as Darius, which means royal one, is in power. And we find in Daniel 6 that uh, Darius goes to work organizing his expanding kingdom for the purpose of having it work for him as opposed to working against him. However, we discover as we read the text that as he appoints the best and the brightest who are suited to achieve the goals that he has for his kingdom, of which Daniel, now in his mid to late 80s, plays a prominent part, we find that contention breaks out, putting the king in a tough spot and threatening Daniel's life. Beginning with verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. <laughs> that word simply means uh, provincial governors, regional governors, to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. So I just want to stop there, make sure we have the picture in our head. You've got the king, you have three national governors under him, and then you have 120 regional governors who are going to manage this expanding kingdom for Darius. Then Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned, that's an important word, to set him over the whole kingdom. So basically, as Darius observed Daniel's work as a national governor, he was so impressed with his abilities 
that he had decided, I'm going to promote Daniel to the position of what today we would call the prime minister. And so it would be the king, Daniel, the national uh, governors, and then on down we would go. Now, the news of this did not set well with the other national governors, nor did it set well with some of the regional governors under them. And we have to ask the question, why? Why did this upset them? Why did this cause consternation for them? We know that it had nothing to do with Daniel's performance. In other words, Daniel was not incompetent, okay? He was very successful. He wasn't lazy. He was a very hard worker. He excelled to the point that this pagan king is about to promote this 80-plus-year-old uh, uh, exile to the highest office in the land, save himself. So we know it had nothing to do with that. But perhaps it had something to do with the fact that his stellar performance may have been revealing their less than stellar performance. Maybe it was showing their flaws or their incompetencies or their laziness. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm just assuming uh, perhaps that might be the case. Perhaps, with Daniel being in his mid to late 80s, they felt he had had his time at the top. He's been in the sun. It's time for him to retire, and we want to advance up and take his place. Perhaps, they resented the fact that Daniel was one of the captives from Judah, a Jew, which means he was a foreigner. And history shows that nationalists never like foreigners taking their jobs or being promoted ahead or above them. No doubt what, no, no, no matter what the case may have been, I think we can agree that it was their own desire to promote themselves to the highest position that motivated them to come against Daniel and seek his demise. They wanted to find a way to get him out of the way. Verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Notice this. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Wow! What a testimony! Think about it, would you? People who are determined to dig up dirt, people who are working as hard as they can to find some place where they can make an accusation. Seventy years Daniel's been serving. Surely in 70 years there's something that would come to the surface and they could then uh, make accusations against him, but they could find nothing. I find that reminiscent of the predicament that the religious elite found themselves in when they were trying to get rid of Jesus. Remember the stories there? In their case, when they were trying to get rid of Jesus, they could find no fault in him. So what did they do? They created false accusations, false narratives, hoping that something that they said would gain traction and would turn the other leaders and, and the people uh, against him. Mark chapter 14 verses 55 through 59 is part of where you'll find that account. 
But despite the fact that they could find no fault, we find that the leaders and the people did turn against him. Going back to Daniel chapter 5, excuse me, verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now what does that mean? What that basically means is they are conceding that if they're going to find credible fault with Daniel, they are going to have to create a scenario that will pit Daniel's civic duty up against his religious duty. What they knew about Daniel was that when push come to shove, he would not compromise his religious duty. Now with that in mind, I want to set the record straight on something. Um, And you may disagree with this, and if you do, that's just fine. But uh, I think there's been a misunderstanding when this chapter's been taught. At least from my past, there's a misunderstanding. And truth point number one addresses it. The conspirators against Daniel did not care about his spiritual life. Okay? Those men did not give one hoot who he prayed to, how many times he prayed. They didn't care. They had a multiplicity of gods. And Daniel has been serving Yahweh in the presence of these Babylonians and now the Medo-Persians since he was brought in uh, as an exile. They don't care. But they observed his unwavering commitment to his God and they decided to use it to put him at odds with the government he served. Now, I say that to say this. This is not an issue of religious persecution. I don't know how you were taught in Sunday school or in Bible studies or your pastor from the past. I've always grown up with the idea that they hated Yahweh and they hated Daniel because he worshipped Yahweh, and so they're going to persecute him because he is a Yahweh follower. It's not the case. They didn't care about his religion. So what I'm going to say is this. As I look at the text and uh, try to discern what is going on here, I think the real issue is one of ageism, racism, and self-promotion. Daniel is old. He's used up old ideas, old ways of thinking. It's a new era. We got to get the young blood in there, right? So there's this bias, I believe, against his age. He's an exiled foreigner, inferior to them. Why? They would say that because of the fact that their nation had been conquered. So obviously they're inferior. So we have this this racism going on and this self-promotion. We want his job or we want to move up the ladder and he's in the way. And so religious duty versus civic duty was one of the ways that they could create a scenario that potentially would find fault in Daniel. Verses 6 through 9. 
Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed. Lie. Because Daniel's right there with him. He's at the top. I don't think he's agreeing. That the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now the king established the injunction and signed the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, Darius signed the document and the injunction. Again, this really isn't about religion. This is not about faith. For Darius, it's more about his ego. It's more about a way for him to find out who's really loyal in the kingdom to him. Who will honor his law and who won't? For the conspirators, it's a way to find fault with Daniel when he makes his petitions to Yahweh as they knew he would. Thus then pitting him against the law that Darius has just signed. Now, although this issue here is not about religion really, it does, however, teach us something about prayer, which is important. I don't like religion. I use the term loosely and in a big, but in Christianity, in our faith with the Lord Jesus Christ um, and Yahweh, uh, prayer is a very important thing. And we see here that um, one of the primary purposes of prayer, that of bringing our petitions, our requests to God, is in view. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7 says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, do what, church? Pray about what? Pray about everything. Tell God what you need. There you have it. Petition. Request. I'm coming to you, God. You are the source. I bring to you my needs, my concerns. Hopefully we're also bringing our worship and our praise. Right? And that's exactly what Paul tells us. And thank him for all that he has done because he's done a whole lot of things that you didn't even ask for that are in your favor. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds everything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. That's, that, that's what this law here that we're looking at is all about. For 30 days, you can petition only the king for any need that you may have. You are not to petition your God, no matter who your God is. You see, that's why I know it's not about uh, Yahweh. It, all the gods of Babylon, all the gods of Medo-Persia, you can't ask them for anything. And they were their gods. you got to bring it all to the king. Now, Daniel, he did not have a problem with petitioning the king for things. Because as a national governor, as a prime minister... That would be part of his job, wouldn't it? 
to come to the king and to make petitions as it relates either to himself or his job uh, managing uh, the kingdom. But you know, when it comes to making petitions, there, there are some things that are only rightly asked of God. We know from Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, which we're not going to go into, but I just point you there because it helps us in this particular case. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, we, we know that Daniel had a copy of the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And we know when we read Jeremiah that God had revealed to him the amount of years that Israel or that Judah would be in captivity, and those years were 70. As we come to verse 3 of chapter 9, we find Daniel saying, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. What was he pleading for with prayer and fasting? Probably many things. But when we look at the context of chapter 9, I think we can say that he was pleading for God for what Jeremiah had recorded to come true, for Judah to be able to return, for the exiles to be able to return. And we find that he took a position of humility in so much that he wore uh, rough burlap and sprinkled himself with ashes. If you go on and read in chapter 9, you'll find an actual prayer of Daniel recorded, verses 4 through 19. And as you read his prayer, you will discover him worshiping. You will discover him confessing his personal sins, as well as the national sins of Judah. And you will find him making petition for the mercy of God that would deliver his people from their exile. Truth point number two. Jesus teaches that prayer is intended to be our connection to the Father through which we honor Him, request the fullness of His kingdom come, submit to His will being done, make known our daily needs, confess our sins for forgiveness, seek strength to forgive others, and to depend on on his deliverance from evil, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Daniel's enemies knew that his unwavering commitment to his God and prayer would put him in a position of obeying God rather than man. And I bring that up, that particular point up, just to say, you know, may we follow that example. May we follow that example that we are so committed to prayer, and to our God. Verses 10 through 15. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. You know, they knew what would happen. They knew his habits. They knew all they had to do was get the king to sign this law. It puts Daniel in a bad spot. And now they just position themselves in a place where they can see and hear if he does what he normally does. And the, the key words in this part are as he had previously done. In other words, 
For Daniel, there was no deviation in his daily routine. Listen to me carefully. Despite the unjustness of this ridiculous law that Darius has signed, Daniel showed up for work. Remember, he's working for Darius. He's working for the government. He showed up for work. And not only did he show up for work, but he did his job with excellence. Despite the unjust law, he did not protest. He did not make demands. He did not seek to overthrow the government. Instead, he returned home daily and he offered his prayers as he was accustomed to doing. Now, I bring that up to say this, that if we're going to live for God in a pagan world, then we must do as Daniel did. Truth point number three. Daniel gave his earthly king the respect and loyalty his position required. Despite the fact that the earthly king was doing unwittingly, unknowingly, putting Daniel in a position where he was either going to to, uh, deny who he worshipped or he was going to have to rebel against the king and do it anyway. But despite that fact, we find that Daniel gave his earthly king the respect and loyalty that his position required. In so doing, he did not fail to give his heavenly king all the worship, dependence, and obedience that his position requires. In case you haven't noticed, I'm tap dancing a little bit around the political climate of our country. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Jesus said. And render to God the things that are God's, Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. Despite the unjustness of all that he was facing, Daniel did just that. He served Darius faithfully and effectively despite the fact that Darius was a pagan, despite the fact that his law was problematic for his faith. But he was not deterred in any way on the spiritual front. He worshiped and petitioned Yahweh as he had always done. Man, I wish I had more time, really, today I do. I, we have more to come today, and it's just not, I don't have the luxury. But man, I want to so bad. I don't even know why I said that. Because I can't do anything about it. Verse 12. Verse 12 records the conspirators bringing their accusations to the king. Or actually, verse 13. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was, notice this, they don't even give him the respect to call him one of the national governors or the 
uh, or, or the prime minister. No, no, no. They, they, they disregard everything Daniel has ever done and all of the high positions he's ever held and all of the good things he's ever done. And the conspirators go all the way back to when Nebuchadnezzar took Judah and took Daniel and his friends and others captive. They go all the way back there and they say, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, O king, for the injunction you have signed, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. That brings us to verses 16 through 18. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. Why was the king distressed? Was he upset with Daniel? Was he mad at Daniel? Was he furious with Daniel because he didn't obey his law? No, no, no. Not at all. Because we see that he was distressed because he's waking up to what has happened. And so he sets his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. You know, it never occurred to Darius that someone who was close to him or valuable to him might actually be impacted by the silly, self-aggrandizing law that he passed. But as soon as the accusation was made, we find that he was gripped with dread. Dread because it meant that elderly, faithful, loyal, profitable Daniel, his life was now on the line. The respect that Darius had for Daniel could be seen in the fact that the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked once it was in instituted. Yet, he literally worked all day to find a way to rescue Daniel. But all of his efforts were of no avail. And Daniel's accusers, these other national governors, and these regional governors, they reminded Darius of the reality of the situation then these men verse 15 came by agreement to the king and said no old king we know you've been working hard all day but you know know that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed the law that Darius signed without thinking was now forcing him to do something he really didn't want to do. By the way, have you ever done anything without thinking? <laughs> huh? Have you ever made a decision or said something to someone without really stopping to consider the ramifications? How many of you have ever gotten it right back in your face? Boy, that's humbling, isn't it? I've been there more than once. Hope to never go back again. But this is what happens. There are ramifications. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. I don't know whether it happened before or, or just as he was being cast in, but the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. 
I almost can hear it like this. Daniel, may the God that you continually serve, may he deliver you. He's feeling real bad. He's not wanting this to happen. There's not a whole lot of hope in Darius' words, but it did reflect the genuine outcome that he wanted to see. But he goes on because he has to. Verse 17, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. You can see the anguish in the man. This is not what he wanted. Now, as we go to verses 19 through 24, I have no idea why Darius had to wait till sunrise. I mean, I would think that if a couple of hours went by, you heard no screaming, yelling, growling, or anything else, that you could assume, well, maybe the lions didn't do anything. I'm going to go back and check. I don't know why he had to wait until the break of day, but verse 19 says that at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. Again, we see he doesn't want this. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And I'm thinking he didn't expect to hear a response. I mean, that's what he's hoping for, but he's a practical man. Hungry lions. Dinner's on the plate. Right? So imagine the shock when he hears, O king, live forever. (laughs) You know, I I hadn't planned to make anything out of this, but um, so... It is the king who signed this ridiculous law. It is the king who caused this situation to occur. And yet, Daniel is respectful. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel And shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. At this point, I'm going to speak to myself, if you don't mind. And you can listen. And you can make any personal application if you find any connection with the comments I'm making to myself. I am a Christian. Holy Spirit baptized into the body of Christ. I am a son of God most high, a joint heir with Jesus Christ, already seated in the heavenlies with Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is it then... That when I find myself in a threatening position, why is it that I seek out all manner of human solutions before bowing before my heavenly king? 
before laying my concerns at his feet and remaining there until he fixes the problem or gives direction concerning what to do. Given who I am and who you are, if you're a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, why is it like that? How can I, how can we live for God in a pagan world when or if we consistently turn to the world's pagan wisdom for solutions to the troubles and trials that we face? I ask you to please hear me. I am not saying that we cannot consult doctors. I am not saying we cannot consult lawyers. Doug, are you happy about that? I am not saying we can't consult teachers or mechanics or bankers. What I am saying is, why do we tend to go there first? And sometimes go there only. Instead of taking our cares to Jesus, whom the Scripture says cares for us. You know, I see in Daniel an abiding confidence, a rock-solid trust in Yahweh, that he would deliver him or would show him what he wanted done in that situation And that reality, that he had that confidence, is seen in the fact that despite what the king had signed and despite what the civil expectations were, he went back to his home three times a day and he prayed unto the Lord. Truth point number four. When facing an unjust law, Daniel trusted Yahweh. When accused by peers who wanted only his harm, Daniel trusted Yahweh. When lowered into the den of hungry lions, Daniel trusted Yahweh. I don't know, but perhaps the lesson the Lord wants us to learn is that we can trust Yahweh. Verse 23, the king was exceedingly glad. And he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. And no kind of harm was found on him. Because what? Because he had, say it, he had trusted in his God. Darius was filled with joyful relief that Daniel was fine suffered no harm on the other hand he was filled with wrath toward those who had taken advantage of him and sought with nefarious intent to kill one of his most trusted servants so we find Darius executing some pagan justice verse 24 the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions Not only them, but their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, it's kind of hard for me to grasp that part, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. 
I think what that probably really means is as they were falling, the lions were on them. <laughs> Gnawing and scratching and clawing and growling and having a feast. As I consider the scene of what it, the, the, the wrong that had been done toward Daniel, I am reminded of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God said, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse. And, and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, Daniel was a descendant of Abraham. An Israelite, a Jew. These leaders with malice aforethought plotted to put an innocent man to death. For what reason? Perhaps they resented his age, that he was still useful and powerful in his 80s. Perhaps they resented his race and the fact that the one who had been conquered had risen to such a high position in their country. Most certainly there was satanic influence behind it, Attempting to thwart God's plans. Whatever the reason, or whatever the reasons, these men had crossed the line that God had laid down in his covenant with Abraham. And true to his word, the curse of their own murderous actions fell on them and their families. Truth point number five. Scripture is filled with names of people who sin brought not only judgment upon themselves, but on those associated with them. I want to say this, that we do not sin to ourselves. Okay, we got that? We got that? Everybody got that? Pastor Mike, do you have that? We do not sin unto ourselves. In other words, our sins aren't just on our head. Oftentimes, many times, almost always, there is a residual impact. So, better to bless our loved ones with Holy Spirit-empowered righteousness than risk their harm through fleshly-driven sinfulness. It is important to remember that our actions impact the lives of friends and family, either for the good or for the ill. Verses 25 through 28, chapter 6 comes to a close with yet another pagan king giving public praise to Yahweh, God Almighty. Then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never shall be to no. And his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered. During the reign of Darius, and in your ESV it says, and 
the reign of Cyrus the Persian, which would lead us to believe that they're two different men. Again, if you go back to the original language and you look at it, it can also be translated even instead of the and, which then would put them parallel. Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The thing I think that I wanted to say as we're coming down here to this close is that Daniel, Daniel prospered the entire time he was forced to live in paganism, with paganism around him. He prospered. He did well. And I believe that that should be a lesson for us. Listen to me carefully. The world is pagan. Do you agree? The world is pagan because it is living under the curse and condemnation of sin. To think that a pagan world is going to live godly or respect godliness is to fail to understand the spiritual deadness that permeates the unredeemed. I think some of us need to wake up to that fact. We have this expectation that a pagan world should live godly. Well, my goodness sakes, you Christians can't even live godly. Am I lying or am I telling the truth? Or or are you all fully sanctified? Because I'm not. So if we can't even live fully as the way the Lord would have us do, then why in the world would we think a pagan world could do so or would even want to do so? Despite all of that, though, we believers, we in the midst of it, can still enjoy God's blessings. And in the midst of it, we can still have a good and productive life and we can honor the Lord and we can be a light for His kingdom. And I want to suggest to you that I believe that that is exactly what God wants us to do. He has planted us in the midst of paganism for a reason. And that is to be His light to the nations. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Christian, I I ask, is your light shining for Jesus? Is your light shining for Jesus? Or... Is it hidden under your loathing of the pagan world around you? Hmm. Let's let that soak in a minute. Obviously, we're not singing the final song. Where's Will? Sorry. Sorry. Is your light shining for Jesus? Or is it hidden under your loathing for a pagan world? We can never... Never, 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 ever, ever love or respect sin. But we must love, respect, and be a light to those who are enslaved in sin. Jesus tells us to let our light shine before others, to be filled with good works, even toward the pagan culture of our day. 
Why? So they can see God's power on display in our lives and give Him the glory. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to do that, I think this is on your note guide, it's going to require that we have engagement in the world with our faith in clear view. We are going to have to be a people with prayer offered up for the redemption of the lost. And we are going to need to be people with hands ready to serve those who are more who we are more likely to curse. Is that where you are? More likely to curse? Hold up in your house? Going only to your Christian mechanic? Or are you engaged in the world with your faith on display? with prayers on your lips for the redemption of the lost, for hands that are ready to serve those we are most likely to curse. I want to challenge us all. Whatever the Spirit of God may be speaking to us, that we would yield to His prompting. And if you need help with that, that you would reach out for counsel, support, prayer, resources. Perhaps you might visit the next steps table after the service and ask Pastor Brett, why was he so hard on us today? And he'll offer you some resources. And finally, unbelieving friend, I just want to say this, the same Spirit of God that was working in Daniel may be actually working on you. He may be showing you your sin. He may be revealing God's love through the work of Jesus on the cross for sin and for his, for, from his resurrection uh, to new life. And if that is the case, you no doubt have questions. And if you have questions, I would encourage you to come and ask because we would welcome the opportunity to help you with those questions. Our contact, my contact information is on the screen. If you reach out, we'll reach back. And I guarantee you that God will meet you at the point of your need. Father, I just ask now that you would take not only this message today, but the other five or six that have been preached and that you would use them to help sanctify us more, to teach us about your will living in this world, about the need to engage the world with our faith on display, our need to pray for the lost, our need to serve the lost. Or whatever the case may be, whatever the issue may be, help us to see that clearly and to confess it and to lay it down and trust you for the resources to move forward in a new way that you would have us go. And for the lost, we may have heard this message today that in some way you would use it to plant the seed of their need for Christ or reveal that need fully or water that need or even bring a harvest in their heart. May they know that there is a place of safety here they can reach out to where they can find answers from your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. 
To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.